I have the honour of bringing you the Bible reading this morning. And as we have heard, if anyone doesn't have a Bible and would like one, there is definitely um, copies available for you to keep up on that back table. And uh, I'm not going to steal RJ's thunder, but the interview did remind us about the importance of hospitality and fellowship. And this Bible passage just fits perfectly with that. So please, if you could turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 42, 47. Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, thanks, Jackie, for that reading. Uh, as we said, we are in the last sermon in our series of, uh, we're calling it the DNA of discipleship, because for the past few weeks, we have been uh, showing and arguing with you that there are key, five key elements that you need to have in order to be a genuine followers of Jesus, five key components that you should have uh, to be a disciple. So just a quick recap, because this is the last one. We said that magnification uh, it's, it's to be able to realize that it's all about God, that it's not about us, that He is worthy of our worship, our praise, so we devote our lives in worshiping and serving Him. And so, therefore, if you have that mindset, then it, w- it should shift you to your mission. Your mission in life now is to bring glory to Him, that God is most glorified uh, when people put their faith in Him. So when we, we make it our mission individually and as a church to proclaim the mission, the good news found in Jesus. But we also said that uh, salvation is not the end goal, but rather we continue to grow in our faith and our devotion because we want to mature to be Christ-like, to be like Jesus uh, and follow Him. Uh, and then last week we said that in order to accomplish the mission, we, we should be serving in ministry. It's to use what God has given us for the maturity of others and for the mission to make disciples of all nations. And so today, we're looking at the importance of being in, in a Christian community, in community, or we're calling it membership, which really, uh, we're going to s- kind of summarize the, the other four as well uh, and bring the whole thing together, uh, because in a way, without community, it's impossible to do the other four. Uh, but before I start, uh, allow me to uh, say a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for this journey of learning, but Lord, we ask that it won't just be a head knowledge, but let it be a heart and hand. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you know, one of the key elements why social media is so attractive is that it gives a place of belonging, that we are attracted to the way it creates community. Uh, often it's a very superficial uh, belonging and superficial community, but nevertheless, it is a place of community. See, social media, it gives you the opportunity to be part of a to be part of something bigger and better, to be part of a significant group. Uh, Instagram uh, and Twitter is not so much about uh, you personally posting something, but it's about you following which group you're in, which celebrities do you like, which politicians do you agree with. It's about being part of a community. Facebook has the opportunity uh, to create different groups for organizations, for parties, for, I for ideologies. Uh, I'm part of a Kmart group. I'm part of indoor uh, plants group. Uh, WhatsApp messaging, even that. It's, it's a messaging uh, app, but it's about messaging in a group. It's the privilege of being invited in this WhatsApp group to be invited in. So it's funny because social media brings this irony that we, we are not only obsessed with our individual lives, and that's why we post things in social media, uh, but we want a place where we can be accepted and perhaps make a difference or simply to be part of something bigger in a wider community. We hunger to be part of something bigger beyond ourselves, beyond our individual selves. Uh, Brene Brown, a professor in uh, sociology, she's known for her TED Talks. She says that we all have this innate human desire to be part of something larger than us because this yearning is so primal. We often try to acquire it by fitting in and by seeking approval, which are not only hollow substitute for belonging, but often barriers to it. She's saying that we all want to belong where we can be accepted for who we truly are, and we want to be part of something bigger than us. So what we try to do is we try to, to imitate or we try to be someone else just in order to fit in because we're scared that no one is going to accept us for who we really are. And so we give in to this pressure of social identity, and so we hide our problems and our flaws and ourselves just so that we can belong. And Brene said, that's really damaging. But see, today I want to show you that there's no other place, there's no other community in the world where you can truly belong and have a healthy sense of identity and acceptance and significance aside from the Christian church. That the church is the ultimate place of belonging. And this is why we should be inviting people to church. And if you're not a Christian and you're sitting there, this is why you should be part of this wonderful community. See, in the book of Acts, when the Christian movement has just started, we find the church is growing. It's growing so rapidly, and they're not even evangelizing it. They're not going out. They're just doing church. It's growing not because of a new program or a new building, but there is something happening in the church that allows for the growth of the church. And so what is that? So... Let's study the church, and I'm going to show you four things that we can learn. We can learn about the church in the early parts of the book of Acts. And the four things are who the church is, what the church does, why the church grows, and how we can be that church. All right? Let's start. Who the church is? Now, we all know that in the Bible, the church, uh, the, the Greek word ecclesia, 
is not a reference to the building, but it's a reference to the gathered people. The word for church, it means, simply means the gathering or gathering. And, but I guess we're asking then, well, what kind of people make up the church? Now, first notice how different these people are. In chapter 2, verse 9, we didn't read it, but look, bef when, before Peter preached, um, the author mentioned that there are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. These are the people. And it's obvious that these people are from all over the place. And these are the people that, that turned to Christ, that became Christians. So the new Christian converts that made up the church, they were very multi-ethnic, and they were very multicultural. And I'm guessing that these, are the, 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 these ethnicities and nationalities, they would not normally hang around each other, or they might even be fighting each other. But after coming to faith, all of a sudden, we see them not just putting up with each other, but they're loving one another. And so then this passage tells us that what binds these people together is that when Peter preached, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. A church is a group of people who through repentance and faith have been forgiven of their sins and have received the Holy Spirit. That's the church. Simply put, the church is united by a common relationship with God and by the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says that Jesus Christ created a new humanity. Not just a new person, a new humanity. It's like saying Christians are like a different breed. They're different types of people. That as Christians, we can differ according to our race. We can differ according to our socioeconomic status. We can differ according to our cultures and even our ideas. But our faith in Jesus supersedes all our differences and unites us all together. This means that belonging to a church it's not like belonging to a social club. It's not like joining Weight Watchers. It's not like joining a golf club or a dog lovers club. It's not simply that we have one thing in common because that's what a club is. You have a common interest. But a church has a common status. We're redeemed because we have a common belief. And so we have this unique connection. And that's why the Bible uses the picture of a family as, as a church. And a church, as we said, has one common mission and purpose in life. And that's why it's like a body. That your whole purpose and meaning in life changes when you become a Christian. And that's why we also say that becoming a Christian is coming to realize that it's not about you anymore. It's not your glory, but God's glory. That you're no longer living for yourself, but for God and your fellow brothers and sisters. So Christians are, I guess, we're still different from each other, but their difference is superseded by their commonality in Christ. And so verse 44, it says that all the believers were together and they had everything in common. 
that they were physically together, they were emotionally together, they were spiritually united as one, they were unified in attitude and purpose and devotion and love. That's the unity of the church. That's why they're gathering. It doesn't mean you lose your differences, that you're still Asian, you're still a mechanic, you can still love golf, you can still follow St. George Illawarra, but now our social identity is way bigger than that. We are redeemed. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are saints. That's what the church is. That in Christ, you have become a new humanity. So secondly, what does the church do? What do they do when they come together? Where it says that they were highly devoted people. Now, what, what, what were they so devoted on? Now, we can spend a whole sermon series on what the church should be doing. But it says here that they were devoted to learning. Three things. They were devoted to learning. They were devoted to loving. And they were devoted to a liturgy. They're all related, but I'm going to break uh, it up a little bit. So in uh, verse 42, it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. First, they were devoted to learning. Learning what? The apostles' teaching, it says. There is, there is a desire to learn more. They were hungry in learning Christ. They, were, they want to understand God's values and God's desires for their lives. They were all devoted students. This means that one of a church's priority is to be a learner of Christ. And that's what a disciple is. A disciple simply means a student that all Christians all of us, doesn't matter if you're a pastor or you're, or you're new, all Christians are students. A church is basically like a school for sinners learning to walk in righteousness and in faith. That Christians come together to learn together, to mature spiritually. Again, that's one of the M's, maturity, maturing to be Christ-like. They were listening to God's word. And they're probably discussing it together. They're asking each other questions on how to obey. They're, they're keeping each other accountable. Um, you know, in, in Bible college, when I started, uh, they say that you will learn uh, three ways. And you need all three, they said. You will learn one-third from the lectures, one-third on your own in, in, your li in the library, in your own research, and so on. And you're going to learn one-third from talking to other students. So they, therefore, they say, attend the lectures Make sure you study and make sure you talk to other students and learn. And when I think of that, I think it, that's the same way we learn in a church. You will learn approximately one-third from sermons and seminars and conferences that we offer, one-third from your own personal devotions and study, and one-third from working out your faith with your fellow Christians. Therefore, don't fall asleep during the sermon. Do your personal devotion and study and be part of a Christian circle so that you can learn from other Christians. But secondly, they were devoted to loving each other. It says that they, were devoted, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, I'm sure you've heard this before, that, that the term fellowship is not how we often use the word. Uh, often when we, when we have coffee and biscuits and we talk about how cold it is outside, we consider that as fellowship already. But the Greek word uh, is uh, koinonia. It's the sense of sharing or the sense of partnering or strong affiliation with one another. Uh, it means that you're really devoted to each other. It means that when they gather, their conversation were centered, as we can see, centered on the apostles' teaching. 
their aim was to encourage and to serve one another. Their goal is to help the other person mature in faith, that they have a real joy and sincerity in seeing each other. This means that they were absolutely open to, to, to each other. They were vulnerable to each other. Verse 46, that they were meeting regularly. They're, they're into each other's lives. And again, that's what a church is. To be fully known and yet be fully loved and accepted. Imagine a community where they know you well. They know your deep sins and your struggles. You, you have little to hide. But at the same time, you are accepted and you are loved in that community. That a church where you're, they're confessing to each other. They're correcting one another. They're carrying each other's burden. And yet often, a, a church is where we put our mask on. In church, there's a, often there's like a spiritual coronavirus happening where we put our mask on when we come in. And we keep our distance from, from others. That we hide our true selves when we come to church. Because we try to look perfect. We want to show everyone that we have everything together when things are not going so well. We try to hide our problems and flaws and imperfections behind achievements, our morality, and our religion. Because everyone's, you know, we can see that everyone's marriage seems to be really good, so we put on the best marital show in church. Because everyone's life seems to be intact, so we put in our best face on Sundays. Because everyone seems so righteous, so we make sure we cover up anything that might be shameful, so we won't be gossiped at. But remember, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who needs a doctor, but the sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Church is meant to be like a hospital. Church is for broken people in need of healing, where you don't need to fake a smile or hide your struggles or cover your shame. That when you go to church, you should see broken, lost, and desperate, sinful people all wanting need and needing grace in their lives. And when you walk in, you should be able to say, I'm no different. I'm broken. I'm lost. I'm sinful. I'm an addict. Addicted to my own self, my own self-esteem, and I need healing. I need the grace of God. That's what a church is. The church should be a place where you can be fully known and yet be fully loved for who you are. It doesn't mean that you stay as you are because, again, it is a transformative community, but it starts with the recognition and desperation to be healed. The church is a place where you shouldn't be judged because everyone else has, not, has something radically wrong in their lives. Lastly, there was liturgy. By liturgy, I mean that there's simply rhythm to their gathering. Notice it says, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. I believe it's not a reference to having just an ordinary meal. It's, I think it's a reference to the Lord's Supper, that they were, when they meet, there's a rhythm. They were remembering, they were praying, they were reminding each other. There's corporate worship, there's prayer, there's study of the word, there's fellowship, and they do that regularly. They were intentional and committed to, their me- to, to the meeting. It's not just when it's convenient. They're, they're regularly meeting to learn, to grow, and to support. They were using the Lord's Supper to remind them of God's grace. They're, they were using corporate worship to encourage one another. 
And they were not only singing to God, they were singing to one another, and it's a rhythm in their lives. And so because of their devotion, because of their commitment to the meeting, and their love, and their learning, and the worshiping together, the church starts to grow. So our third point, why the church grows. Um, the reason that the church is growing is, is simply because of their devotion to one another. Now, in John 17, when Jesus was praying, just before he was arrested, he said this. He said, my prayer is not for them alone, not just for the disciples. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just, just as you are in me and I am in you. I have given them the glory that you gave me and they, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Notice that Jesus, again, was not just praying for his disciples. He's really praying for the, uh, for the church. And he prays for the unity of the church. Then he goes to say, he's saying that the unity of the church is what will make people know about his work on the cross and the love of the Father. You see that? That people will come to faith not because of intellectual persuasion, that people will believe not through miraculous observation, but the gospel will spread when the church is shown to be united. When the church is seen or characterized for their love and their, and their forgiveness towards each other, then others will know about the forgiveness and the love of God towards them. That's why in verse 44 in Acts, again, they have everything in common. So much so that verse 45, they sold properties and possessions to give anyone who had need. Extreme love and extreme generosity. Imagine that kind of unity, that people would walk in and be amazed and wonder, what would make an entire community this generous? How can such diverse people be so united? How can a Gentile sit next to a Jew? How can the master be serving the slave? How can they be a family even though they're not related? Why do they look so happy and content in life that they are being so generous to everyone? What can create such community? And people would say, I want to be part of that. Do you see? That's what made the early church so attractive. It was lives transformed by the gospel. It was communities formed by the gospel. People witness, witness that and say, I want to know what they believe in because I want to be part of that. You know, last year, I joined a fitness cult. Uh, it's called CrossFit. Uh, CrossFit is basically about inflicting as much physical pain in the shortest amount of time and pay a lot of money to do it, and they call that fitness. Uh, so you kind of think, well, who would join that? And the first time I visited a CrossFit gym, I remember the exercise like, was really torturous, and people looked like they were dying. But then they were encouraging one another. They were high-fiving one another. They were, all, they were all loving it. They were having a great time. CrossFit somehow made extreme exercising fun. They made physical torture attractive. And you know how? Through community. They've created such a strong community culture that it overcomes pain, or even they found joy in pain. 
And so every day I woke up at 5 a.m., I went to class. There are many times I didn't want to go. It's too cold, I'm too tired, I'm too, sto too sore. But every morning I think to myself, there are people out there who are expecting me to be there. People out there who enjoys my company. People who needs my encouragement. So I need to go and I want to go. Now, in the same way, we, you know, as a church, we can create such an attraction for people to come. You can run a special event, give something for free. But what makes people stay is when the people of God reflects the message of God through radical love and unity. In a community together, they can overcome pain and struggles and hardship in life. And people around us would say, I want to be part of that. Therefore, the key to church growth, the key to a revival is not focusing on what we need to do. There's no formula on church growth, but who you need to be, who we need to be as a church. In Acts, again, their lives were filled with so much joy, so much generosity, so much vulnerability, so much love towards each other. And so here's a group of really diverse people singing together, lovingly serving one another, eating together. They're completely honest to each other about their lives and about their struggles, and they're, they're encouraging one another. Don't you want to be part of that? It starts with you. The key is not what we need to do, but who you need to be. And so lastly, how can we be that church? So if the key to this kind of church remains on the type of people, let's figure out how we can be that kind of people. Let's go back even before they started gathering to the birth of the church. It was the day of Pentecost. The promised Holy Spirit came into the apostles. They started speaking in different languages. Peter started preaching the gospel. And so from verse 36, Peter concluded his, his sermon. He said, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That God made him Savior, he's the Messiah, and the Master as Lord. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, two things I want to show you quickly. Firstly, they were cut to the heart. It's a metaphor. It's a very strong metaphor. To cut the heart is to cut it open, to receive such deep conviction. It's a painful conviction of the truth. It's like being stabbed. Uh, in John 16, it says that when the Spirit comes into the world, He will convict the world of sin, and He will convict the world of righteousness. The Greek word for convict means to cross-examine until you see your mistake, until you find yourself guilty, that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you the real you, and it will pain you to know yourself. So the question is, do you know yourself? Do you know your real self? That it's, that, does it stab you in the heart thinking that, how self-centered am I? Has the gospel cut through you? Have you ever been convicted of your sins? The sins that you try to hide, the sins that you don't even know existed. But secondly, when the people were convicted, look at what, what else they said. They said, brothers, what shall we do? They're looking for answers. They're, they're submitting. They're saying, we'll do anything to find healing. If you find out that you have a terminal illness, you'll do anything to find a cure. You'll pay whatever, you'll go wherever, and you will do whatever. That people will try, to, will try any experimental drugs to find healing, that we'll do what we need to do to stay alive. In the same way, Peter said, it's not what you need to do, it's something that you receive. Grace is not about doing, it's free, it's receiving. Repent 
and be baptized. He's saying, let go of your old self and receive your new identity. That's why in verse 40, he's saying, turn away from this evil generation so that you can be formed into a new humanity. Church, that's the gospel, that you are more sinful than you ever thought, but at the same time, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared believed and hoped. And if you truly understand that, it will transform you. And if you put a bunch of people together that has been transformed by that gospel, they can change the world. A church is composed of people who's been cut to the heart so deep that has been restored by the good news of the gospel that their lives is nothing but a joyful gratitude to praise God and loving the people. That's how we grow when we work the gospel deep in our hearts. So let's ask that to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you for forming us into a new humanity, that we are, we are not just uh, transformed, but we are a new person in you. So Lord, we ask that you will help us to understand what that means in our individual lives and also what it means as a community of faith. This we pray in your name. Amen.